out if you want to take your Bible and turn with me to Revelation chapter 3. <clears throat> and uh, so you're finding your place there. Hope many of you, if not all of you, noticed that on the back of your bulletin that uh, we've already given a little over $7,000 toward Lottie Moon Christmas offering after just one week. And so, uh, man, this is it's awesome to be a part of a church that believes in missions and believes in reaching the nation's with the gospel of Jesus Christ, and so uh, thank you, church, for continuing to be a generous church, a missional church. And with that said, the fact that it's Lottie Moon season at Southern Baptist just tells us it's Christmas season. And if you haven't figured it out yet, Christmas will be here in, what, 16 days or something like that. And so, men, if you're like me, you probably need to go buy that Christmas present before December 24th at 4 p.m. when everything's closed. So I just want to encourage you that it's almost time. You know, that phrase, almost time, is a favorite phrase, a favorite set of words for every punctual person. It is one of the most dreaded statements for those who are the procrastinating version of people. So I don't know where you reside, whether you're punctual or you're a procrastinator, but either way, this is a phrase that we hear all the time. It's almost time. In fact, we hear it Right here in Revelation, we started this book several weeks ago, back in September, and we saw there in Revelation chapter 1, verse 3, these words. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Here we see that the revelation of Jesus Christ was given to John of the things that must soon take place. They call us to preparation. Jesus is telling us through John that the time is almost here, that Jesus is returning. And as we work through the book of Revelation, as we've been working now through these seven letters here in chapters 2, now we're moving into chapter 3, we are seeing that these are seven historic letters written and given to seven historic churches in seven historic cities. Each one of them was known by the Lord Jesus, and each one received this specific message tailor-made just for that congregation. And the point of the seven messages and the entire book, if you will, was to equip and to prepare the people of God for the return of Jesus Christ. It is almost time, so we better get ready. That's why we've titled the series of this study through Revelation, get ready, because that's what the book is all about. It's about us, as the people of God, preparing ourselves for the return of Jesus Christ. It's for those who have yet to come to Jesus to be prepared as well through a relationship with Jesus. So we need to get ready. We need to be looking ahead. I like what Dean Inge said. He says, he who marries the spirit of this time will soon be a widower. Time is moving. Time is passing. And so we need to prepare for what is ahead. As we've already seen working through these letters, we're seeing that Jesus has a lot to say about the good happening in these churches. He also has a lot to say about the negative, the things that the churches are not doing. In fact, five of the seven churches were not ready for his return. We're going to be in the letter that's written to Philadelphia next week. That's one of those churches that was prepared. It was ready. But the church here that we're going to look at this morning, the church of Sardis, was not prepared. We've seen that the Ephesian church had abandoned their first love. Pergamum was a worldly church. Thyatira was grossly 
tolerating sin in their midst. Unfortunately, in this grammatical downward spiral, as we walk through chapters 2 and 3, what we're seeing is that the church now as we move into the church of Sardis has reached an all-time low, and they needed to wake up. And so if you've got your place there in Revelation chapter 3, let's begin in reading the first six verses. Jesus says unto the angel of the church in Sardis, write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot out his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Sardis was a city located approximately 40 miles southeast of Thyatira. And so if you've been kind of keeping up where these churches are located there in Asia Minor, there in modern-day Turkey, you would know from last week's study where Thyatira is. Look 40, 35, 40 miles to the southeast, and there would be Sardis, a most glorious and ancient city in Asia. It's founded approximately 1200 B.C. It became the capital of the kingdom of Lydia. It was a wealthy city. Lydia was a wealthy kingdom situated in the Hermas Basin. I know all this geography doesn't matter to most of you, but I like geography, so bear with me. It was situated there in the Hermas Basin, one of the hills jutting out from the ridge of Mount Tomlis. The Acropolis lay partly at the top of that hill with a 1,500-foot precipice on three sides. And on the southern side was a very steep entrance up to where the city was built. Those smooth and vertical cliffs and the steep southern uh, approach rendered it nearly impregnable by attacking armies. This week I, I did some Google search of just what it would look like and came up with some pictures of what that mountain looks like there. And there's these steep cliffs on three sides just as history tells us. And on the back side is a very steep approach as well. This would have been a, a perfect place to put a citadel. So not only was this an impregnable uh, military compost, or a compound, not compost, that would be bad. It's, our, it's been one of those Sundays. I really expect God to do some great things this morning, because you know what happened to me as I walked out and tried to get in my truck to leave on time? It didn't start. I've been nursing a bad battery, trying to get it as long as I could, so I, I got two weeks out of it, more than I probably should have, and this morning on Sunday morning, of course... It didn't get started, so it's been one of those mornings. So just bear with me if I, if I say something out of touch. I'm still thinking about that battery. And so you've got a city here, you've got a kingdom here, set it up, seated up on a mountaintop. It was a perfect place to have a military outpost. It was a perfect place to build a kingdom so that attacking armies could not destroy it. Also, this kingdom was wealthy. I mentioned it earlier. Much of Sardis' wealth came from the gold that was taken from the nearby Pactolus River. 
Legend has it, back in Greek mythology, legend has it that King Midas, who was this king who was greatly wealthy, and, and, and I guess it's like the Midas that does our mufflers and breaks. Everything he touched turned to gold. And so legend has it that Midas put his gold there in that river, and so the people of Sardis began to mine that gold, and they became wealthy. Sardis is known as the city that was the first place in, in modern history to mint gold and silver coins, and so that further boosted its economic strength. The city also benefited from its location at the western end of the royal road that led down to the capital of Persia, there in Susa. It also had connecting avenues and roads coming from the west, and so this was a perfect place for trade to take place. It's known as a center for wool and other textile commodities. All of that together made this a very wealthy, prosperous, and luxurious kingdom and city. Due to their great wealth, the people of Sardis were widely known for how they lived a very luxurious and a loose way of life. As we read through this particular letter to the church there in Sardis, it's significant that nothing is said about the things that is said of the other churches. There's nothing said of anything about Jewish hostility, even though we know from history that there was a large Jewish population there in the city of Sardis. But there was no Jewish hostility such as in other places. We also don't read in what Jesus says to this church about any sort of outside pressure coming from the culture against them because they denied emperor worship or they wouldn't engage in certain religious practices. There's nothing said of that. There's nothing negative really said of any uh, or outside negative pressure from anything in there in the world. There's no heretical teaching taking place like we saw in Thyatira and other cities. Instead, what we see, the main problem was that of a deep spiritual apathy. This apathy may have resulted from the softness and the love of luxury that was so prevalent within the culture of this city. And so the believers there in Sardis were just like the people in the city. They were living the easy life. And unlike their brothers and sisters in Ephesus and Pergamum and Thyatira, Jesus here offered no commendations for this church. Did you notice that? Last week when we read there in chapter 2, verse 19, he says, I know your works, your love, your faith, your service, your patient endurance. And then he goes on to greatly and strongly rebuke the city of Thyatira, the church there. Here now in Sardis, he says, I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. No commendation whatsoever. In fact, he gave them nothing but a sharp rebuke. See, this church did have the appearance of life. They had the appearance of vitality because of their religious activity, because of the forms of worship they engaged in and held to. But in reality, it was nothing but death. And so Jesus called the church here to wake up. Wake up, he says. According to Grant Osborne in his commentary, the Greek structure here could also be translated, show yourself to be watchful. Wake up, perk up, alert, and show yourselves to be what you say you are. You see, this church had fallen asleep spiritually, and they needed to be woken. They needed to change their ways. They needed to prove they were vigilant in the faith. But by all accounts, from Jesus' perspective, that is, they were dead. Oh, the... 
between themselves, people in the community, people from outside, maybe even other churches from other cities, they would have looked at Sardis. They would have looked at the believers there and say they are going through motions. They're doing what they should be doing. They, they look like they're followers of Jesus. They look the part of a Jesus follower. But from Jesus' perspective, who sees past the facade into the deep recesses of the heart, says you look and appear to have a reputation of life, but in reality you are dead. Why is that? It's because they had fallen asleep spiritually. They were engaging in things that were not what they should be engaging in. Sin had taken over. By all accounts, from Jesus' perspective, these were dead people who claimed to know Christ. And so Jesus admonished them, going on in verse 2, to strengthen what remains. That is, they needed to remember what they had received and heard. This need was equally true of those who were religious, but not in relationship with Christ. See, he calls them to observe the faith of those who had faith and to learn from them. Jesus is speaking to this church, people who are in Christ and not in Christ. You say, I didn't know you could be a part of a church if you're not in relationship with Jesus Christ. You're absolutely right. You're not in God's church, but you may, your name may be on the role of a local church. And so Jesus is speaking to both groups here. Those who are saved, those who are not saved within this church. And he called them to remember, to receive what they had heard in the past. There were three types of members at this first Sardis, if you will. First, there were many who were nothing more than spiritually dead zombies. Listen to this, plain church. Walking around, going through motions, doing spiritual activities. They were engaged and involved in the life and the fellowship of the church. But they were spiritually dead zombies playing church. If you remember back when you were a child, I see it in my home quite often that we, my girls will go up and do it. I did it as a kid. You did it as a kid. But you would play and mimic. You would play school. Or you'd play doctor. Or you'd play family. Or, or you'd play uh, cowboys and Indians. But you were mimicking and, imp- and, and imitating a, a concept or an idea or an organization. Some of these people attended regularly. They were involved there in the church. Perhaps they serve and led in that local church. Others were less involved, these spiritual zombies. But Sardis was, quote-unquote, their church. Regardless of their involvement or what their, the members thought about the church or their church, from Jesus' perspective, they were nominal Christians. They were Christians in name only. Simply dead men and women walking around and playing church because they had never turned to him in faith and repentance. Did you know it's entirely possible? And often is the case that people believe they are in relationship with Jesus Christ simply because of their involvement in a local church. Because they participate, because they attend. See, they show signs of religious activity. They even hold forms of religious worship. Some may carry titles and lead areas of ministry. They may even be able to point back to some sort of spiritual moment in their past, maybe their baptism or something like that. But there's no real spiritual fruit in their lives. 
They remind me of what Jesus warns us of in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. That there will be a time when people will stand before the Lord Jesus in the judgment and they will say, Lord, Lord, did I not? And then they will list out this litany of things they did on behalf of the Lord in the Lord's church. And if you know that passage, you know what Jesus says to them. Depart from me. I don't know you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I do not know you. How and why can he not know them or does he not know them? It's because there was never a transformation in their life. And for here, these spiritual zombies in Sardis walking around playing church, there was no evidence of transformation in their lives. Therefore, there was no ounce of life within them. It reminds me of the verse that brought me to faith in Jesus myself. First John chapter 5 verse 12. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. You see, I was a religious kid, a religious zombie walking around playing church, living, serving, leading in the congregation, even as an 18-year-old before I came to know Christ, leading a 7th grade Boys, small group as a freshman in college, but none of that mattered at all because there had never been a transformation in my life. It's the same for those who were here in Sardis. Second, there were many indifferent believers in the church who were enamored with the culture. You see, these people looked more like the world than they did of the Lord Jesus These were genuine followers of Christ. Don't mistake that. Earlier in their lives, they had heard the gospel. They had put their faith in Jesus. They had believed on him for salvation. They had turned to him in faith and repentance. They, however, had allowed the cares and the desires and the things of this world to influence them more than the Lord. You see, their focus was on living the cultural dream of Sardis and enjoying all that this luxurious life could afford them. That was their focus. That's what their, their, their goal in life was. Sharing the gospel with the lost was not on their radar. Teaching and living out the word of God before others was not something they consumed their lives with. They were happily to simply go through religious motions. And there was a third group in this church at First Sardis. They are the faithful few. These faithful few loved the Lord. They loved his word. These believers, like those who were indifferent, were regenerate. They knew Jesus as Lord and Savior. They had heard and responded to the gospel in faith and repentance. But unlike those who were indifferent to the gospel and indifferent to the faith that they had in Jesus, these continued to pursue the Lord. They continued to love the Lord. They continued to hold God's word and to abide by God's word. And to abide in Christ. So, Jesus was allowed to be pressed out through their lives. In this church, there were these three people. Spiritual zombies playing church and different believers and enamored with culture and a faithful few who love the Lord. And the truth is, you can find these three types of people in any church, on any street corner, in any place around the world. But in Sardis... The first and the second groups became the prominent groups over and above the faithful few. They outnumbered them. 
And so that begs a question. How in the world did this church get to a place where those who were playing church and not in relationship with Jesus, okay with just simply going through the motions, and those who were believers but really didn't care, and again, wanted to go through the motions, how did they become the predominant and the prominent members of the church over and above the faithful now few? Vance Havner used to say this, that ministry often goes through four stages. A man, a movement, a machine, and lastly, a monument. That's where Sardis is. They've become a monument church. Just like the city itself, and I'm going to share a little bit more about this in, in a minute as far as the history of the, of the city itself, but like this city, the church was living on past glories. Sardis is no longer what they once was. Now they are a conquered place. They've been conquered multiple times by other uh, armies and other empires, but they're still living in the glory days of yesteryear. This city had become nothing more than a monument to preserve, and the church itself followed along with that and became nothing more than a monument to preserve. The progression, we need to understand, was slow, but it was steady. It began with the subtle erosion of the faithful. You see, complacency and apathy began to replace fervency as they enjoyed the easy life. Here's where we are in America today. We enjoy the easy life. You say, it's a little difficult to be a Christian today. You can't stand up and say certain things. Well, praise the Lord that it's getting a little bit more difficult because it's weeding out the tares within our churches. And I think it's going to get even worse, and I kind of even would embrace that to some extent. The church needs to be brought back to health. But here in Sardis, the erosion was slow but, but steady. As they began to enjoy the easy life, church involvement and service and the sharing of the gospel became afterthoughts in their day-to-day -day lives. Church attendance became more about social networking than the worship of Jesus and the building up of others. It was all about how can I connect with and make another business deal? How can I connect with to make another political arrangement? The church then turned in, then to a country club of, uh, of believers rather than a hospital for sinners. This lack of passion grew with every subsequent generation. It just got worse and worse and worse. And so the next generations would keep some forms of worship, but because of their parents and, and their parents' failure to really intentionally pass the gospel on, the need for repentance was quickly diminishing. The need for faith and, and repentance of sin are being lost. It came down to just simple inclusion in the kingdom was equated to inclusion within the church. If your name's on a roll, your life is okay. And so what we see here is a clear degeneration taking place in Sardis. The next step would have been full abandonment of the church. They say, wow, that church was messed up. That church was knocking on some dangerous doors. I believe what happened to Sardis is a danger, if not presently a danger for us today. You see, we're one generation, always, one generation removed from extinction. Think about something with me, if you will. We should not be surprised when our children and grandchildren walk away from the faith and the church when we fail to faithfully pass it on to them. Hear what I just said. We should not be surprised when our kids and our grandkids fail to live up to
Let's pray for Nate. Father, I thank you for Nate. God, I thank you. He was such a sweet, godly man. And Lord, whatever is ailing him right now, we just lift him before you. God, we know you love him. We know you're working in his life. God, we know that you are more than capable of caring for him. So, Lord, I pray that it's these who are attending to him, Lord, you'd use them to meet the needs that he has right now. God, we pray that you protect him, watch over and care for him. In Jesus' name, amen. If you want to redirect your attention there to Revelation chapter 3, I'm grateful for medical people in our church that when something does arise, they can quickly help. And so I um, appreciate those folks that are walking out. I want you to think about what's going on here in the text. Think about how dangerous this is, a slippery slope this is for a church. You see, what's happened to Sardis, what did happen to Sardis, is easily capable of happening in our churches. In fact, I could take you to churches uh, even right now throughout our convention where this is taking place, where they have once been a hot-hearted fellowship, once have a passion for the gospel, once was a, a light in their community, but because their eyes got off what was most important and got on what was least important, if not just secondarily important, they now no longer are a church making any difference at all, holding on to the past. And so this is a dangerous thing for all of us. We are one generation removed from extinction. How does this happen? It happens when we don't live out the gospel. When I don't really believe the gospel enough to pass it on to my children and to my grandchildren, I should not be surprised when they don't love the gospel as much as I do. When I don't read my Bible as much as I should, when I don't put my heart into my faith, it should not surprise me with my children and grandchildren go a step further away. When I don't see my children embracing the church? Why, why are my children are not getting involved? Why are my grandchildren not coming back to, to the church that they were raised in? It should not surprise us when, when my life, your life, gave them a message that says church attendance is not really that important. Church involvement is not that important. Service in the church is not that important. When my children and grandchildren would rather take their monies and their treasures and their, their talents, the things that God's blessed them with, and, and use them and spend them on tr trivial things and frivolous things and, and temporary temporal things, why should it surprise me when that's exactly what I did with my own life and what you've done? You see, Subsequent generations are a product of what they see in the ones who train them and teach them and invest in them. Why would people, why would our children and grandchildren strive to live out the gospel when they have not seen it lived out at home? So what killed the church in Sardis? I'm going to give you three things and I'm going to finish with the three things that are in your... In your um, bulletin. What killed the church in Sardis? Number one, a failure to guard against sin. At some point, the believers there in Sardis start, stopped guarding against their natural propensity to sin. Now, we don't read from what Jesus says of any 
gross immorality such as what we've already seen in some of these other churches. It was just more than anything an an apathy and a complacency, but that always, just like everything else, has its genesis in sin. And so they stopped guarding against sin. Jesus had radically changed their lives, or at least some of their lives. He had changed their grandfathers and grandmas' lives early on. He moved them from death to life. He gave them victory over sin. They, however, became too comfortable in their victory. My mentor, Johnny Hunt, used to say, an unguarded strength is a double weakness. And so that's what's taking place here. They saw a strength, something that Jesus had brought into their lives. And because they were so confident in it, they stopped guarding it, and it became a double weakness to them. Though we, we and they were free from sin, we must never forget, just like those in Sardis should have never forgotten, that we still can and we often do sin. You see, this church's failure to guard became their downfall. Second thing that led to their death was a conformity to the lifestyle of sin. See, since they failed to guard against sin, now they're embracing sin. They're conforming their lives around this lifestyle of sinfulness. Because with their guard down, those in Sardis began to slowly resemble the unbelievers within the culture around them. They conformed to the culture rather than being salt and light and striving to transform the culture. And this led to a third thing that killed the church, and that is content to play church. This church slowly became populated with unregenerate people. Religious rote became the norm, and spiritual life became the exception. Religious motions, religious activity, religious uh, things on the calendar was what we were living for, what they were living for. But people who actually lived for Jesus built their life upon the gospel. That was the exception. So the only antidote for Sardis' degeneration, as Jesus has said, was to wake up. Wake up. Realize the spiritual condition you're in. This church needed to remember and to keep the gospel. The idea here is a return to what they had heard and what they had been taught. Though they had sidelined the gospel, I want you to think about this. It was still in front of them in the forms of worship that they held. A few weeks ago, I got back from from Spain, from Barcelona. I've been there uh, four times. Some of you have been there with me. And so if you've been there with me, you've been to the Sagrada Familia. It's this beautiful cathedral that Gaudi uh, started and created. It's being finished. It'll be finished in, I think, 2026 or something like that. It is absolutely phenomenal. The gospel is portrayed in the architecture in ways that I can't even explain to you. You just have to go and see it. And you walk through and you take the tour and you hear all these different things and they're telling you, this is why Gaudi was putting this in there. This is what it meant. And it always leads to the gospel. The front of the building talks about uh, the uh, the nativity this scene, the, how Jesus came, the backside of the cathedral outside is the resurrection and ascension part of the thing. And so you get the gospel outside, inside, and then on the outside again. Thousands of people will walk through that building every single day. Forms of worship are before them, but most, if not all of them, miss it. Why is that? It's because they can't see it. And so Jesus is saying to the church at Sardis, much like I've many times standing there in Sagrada Familia, would love to stand up on a stage and begin to proclaim the gospel that what you are seeing before you is the message you need to embrace. Right now at this Christmas season, forms of worship, the forms of the gospel are all around us. 
If we will listen to the traditional Christmas songs that have the gospel in them, they point you to Jesus. And so rather than just getting caught up into a cultural holiday that we celebrate in America, it's not about that. It's about Jesus and him desiring to change your life. So as as Jesus says here in verse 6, let him who has ears to hear, hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Jesus says, Sardis, wake up and remember and to keep the things that you've heard. You've heard the gospel. It's not changed your life because you've never actually listened to obey. But bring it into your life and let it change you. That's what we need to do in our churches today. They had sign-line the gospel and become comfortable with simply the forms. Lastly, they needed to repent of their sin. That's what Jesus says. See, it's not enough to simply acknowledge Jesus and his sacrifice. Jesus here tells them that they needed to turn from their sin and to receive the forgiveness purchased by that sacrifice. It's more than just saying, man, that was a wonderful thing Jesus did for me. It's another thing to say, because Jesus did that, I must repent, turn from my sin, and receive what he's done for me into my life. His sacrifice And the gospel that comes from it was the antidote. These truths become evident in this call to wake up. There's three things that I want us to walk away with this morning quickly. Number one, religion neither can nor ever will make you right with God. Religion cannot make you right with God. It is simply not enough to be religious. If religion was enough, the Jews would have had everything okay. At the time of Jesus, they were the most religious people perhaps on the face of the earth. So it's not enough to go through religious motions. Being in church, being around Christians does not and will not make you a follower of Jesus any more than hanging out in your garage will turn you into a vehicle. It's any more than, than whatever you analogy you want to put there. You can't just be around something enough for it to change who you are. There has to be a transformation from the inside that's pressed out to the outside of your life. Religion can never do that. Religious activity. You say, why, why is it not good enough? Here's why it's not good enough. You can't pay your sin debt. You're flawed. You're sinful. Uh, Isaiah 64 tells us that our righteousness, whatever we would hope to bring before the Lord, they're like a polluted garment, a filthy rag, nasty, bloody, stinky rag in the holiness of God. So there's nothing you could do. Uh, I've used this illustrating quite a bit over the years. I, I was a long jumper in high school. I, I jumped 20 feet or so in, in a state meet one year. And so that pales in comparison to what Olympic jumpers would jump, 27, 28 feet. But even they pale in comparison to the Grand Canyon. I've been to the Grand Canyon. It's absolutely phenomenal standing there looking 10 miles to the other side. And you think, how in the world did this ever come about? How could anyone ever get to the other side? And yet when we bring our religious activity to the edge of of the canyon, the gulf that separates us and God, there's nothing I can do to launch myself to his side. But praise Jesus, he's done something to bring God to us. He laid his life down across the chasm that separated us because of our sin. Now because of his death, burial, and resurrection, I can walk back to the Father, the one who's created me and loves me. Religion cannot do any of that. 
Secondly, the gospel is the sounding alarm of God. I love what 2 Peter 3.9 says. It tells us there that the Lord is not slow about his patience. He, he doesn't wish that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance and faith. You see, the gospel is the alarm of God sounding off to wake sinners from their peril, to wake them up. You see, the only way to know you need help is to first understand that you're in danger. In order to be saved, you first have to realize that you're lost. And the gospel does that for us. This is what the gospel is doing. It's the alarm that says you're going toward danger. You're headed toward the cliff. You will perish if you keep going. But there is another way. There is a safer way. There is a better way. There is a holier way. And it's the gospel of Jesus Christ that sounds the alarm in our lives. We need to listen. Third thing, Jesus alone makes you right before God. So if religion can't do it, then what does? Jesus makes us right before God. That's what we see here in verses 4 through 5. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. And they will walk with me, Jesus says in white, for they are worthy. How are they worthy? Because I've changed their life. I've made them worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. And I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. You see, Jesus, through his sacrificial and atoning death there on the cross, has paid the penalty for sin. Where any sacrifice you have made was insufficient, his sacrifice was sufficient. It was accepted by the father. And so his death and his resurrection is the only things that make it possible to be clean. The, the, the language that Jesus uses here is having clothing or garments of white, spotless and blameless before the Lord. He speaks of having our names written in the book of life to be confessed before the Father. How does that happen? It's not because you stood up and says, in my strength and in my religious activity, I've made my right or myself right before God. That's not how you do it. We will never do that. Jesus stands with us and says, I've done everything necessary for them to be made right with you, between you and them. And so accept them because you accept me. Accept them because I love them. Accept them because I've paid their sin in full. I love those words of Jesus on the cross in the Aramaic. It's to tell us die. It is finished. So this message to the church there in Sardis was simple. Wake up. And the message for us this morning is simple. Wake up. Wake up. Are you spiritually asleep today? Are you spiritually out to lunch today? Are you a spiritual zombie, perfectly content with plain church? I, I've been in ministry for, for a lot of years. I've seen men and women play this part. I've seen men and women go through religious motions. I've seen men and women okay with simply being a part of church, going through these motions, doing these things, walking around like dead men and dead women, content to simply play the game. Is that where you're at today? Or perhaps you're an, an indifferent believer. You're an, an enamored with the culture. You're living the American dream. You're just living for yourself. You're just living to have a good time. Is there anything wrong with, with, with the American dream? No, not itself. But when it becomes the Lord and the master of your life, there's something wrong there. I mean, why would we as a follower of Jesus ever uh, bring our, why would we ever take the best that God has for us and lower it to something this world has to offer? 
So Jesus says, wake up. Hopefully you're part of the faithful few. So what is the message for you this morning? Stay awake. Stay on guard. In the city of Sardis, it's beautiful how Jesus, when he's tailoring these messages to these churches, he also tailors it to the culture and the context of which they find themselves. So these exhortations to watchfulness carry some special weight with this city because twice in its history, the Acropolis, this incredible and seemingly impregnable uh, fortress, had fallen to the enemy due to a lack of vigilance on the part of the defenders. In 549 B.C., King Croesus, king of Lydia at the time, marched out against Cyrus, the king of Persia. You remember King, king Cyrus. He's the, he's the emperor of basically the known world at the time, the greatest and most powerful man alive in his day. And so King Croesus marches out his army, not just standing behind his walls to defend the city. He marches out against Cyrus. He thinks that he's actually going to defeat the Persian king. Well, he's defeated. He retreats back to the city of Sardis, there on the Acropolis, there on the mountaintop. He's reforming his troops. He's getting people healthy so that he can go out and battle again. Unbeknownst to him, Cyrus wasn't, he wasn't satisfied with just simply winning the battle. He wanted to win the war. And so Cyrus pursued Croesus back to Sardis. So as the king is there with his troops uh, preparing to launch another attack, Cyrus shows up on his doorstep. They, they battle it out for a while, and so he thinks that there's nothing's going to happen. No one's ever scaled the walls before. Nothing, no one's ever taken the city before. But Cyrus sent a climber to work his way up a crevice on one of the nearly perpendicular walls of the mountain fortress, And because no one was at the top watching that portion of the fortress, he was able to get in, let everyone else in, and the city fell. If that wasn't enough to get the attention of the people there in Sardis, it happened again in 195 B.C. A Cretan by the name of Lagoras discovered a vulnerable point and with a band of 15 men made a daring ascent, opened the gates from within, and allowed the armies of Antiochus the Great to overpower the rebel Archeus. Failure to learn from history meant that this city and the people of the city continued to repeat the same old song and dance. They failed to guard a strength in their life, and it became a weakness. This morning, for those of us who love the Lord Jesus and love the Lord Jesus' word, we need to guard it in our lives, guard it in our homes, and guard it in our church. We need to wake up. Church just reveals to us that the city must have woken up, though. Sometimes you read some of these and say, man, this is so bad. Would they ever turn? Sometimes we look at our own lives and we think, is there any hope for us? We look at churches and think, there's nothing that ever could be done for them. They are doomed. I, I'll be honest, I, I've known some, some, I have some friends that have pastored some churches where they tell me, I don't think God could ever do anything here. <laughs> I mean, it's that bad. It was kind of that bad for Sardis. But church history seems to least point to the fact that the people there in Sardis heard the words of Jesus Christ that was sent to them from John and heeded it. Because a few decades later, they had a very godly, prominent, 
bishop by the name of Miletus or Miletus, and he led that church. So it seems like the church listened and obeyed. We need to do the same thing in our lives. And so that tells us one thing. It tells us it's never too late to turn to Jesus. It's never too late to hear and to obey. And this morning, perhaps you're that zombie that's just comfortable playing church. What is the message for you today? Turn to Jesus. Remember, keep the word of God and repent of your sin. If you're an indifferent believer, it's just kind of, again, simply going through the motions. You're just like the zombie. It's just you're in relationship with Jesus. You, don't, you just don't look like you're in a relationship with Jesus. What's the message for you? Wake up. Hear the gospel. Come to Jesus Christ. And for us as followers of Jesus who are really striving with a heart that wants to love the Lord Jesus and do what Jesus tells us to do, what do we need to do? Guard the gospel in our lives. Wake up and be vigilant and vigilant in our lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning that the good news of the gospel is that you love us, that you created us for yourself. God, we know that sin has marred that in our lives. God, we know that sin has separated us from you. But, Lord, I'm grateful today that you've done everything necessary to bring us back into relationship with you. Lord Jesus, you are the tree that was pushed over and bridges the gap between the Father and sinful humanity. You're the bridge that now we can walk across because of your death, burial, and resurrection. And so, Lord, I thank you for that. I thank you that even though sin has broken us, you've made it possible to be healed. That's the best news of all. And this morning, Lord Jesus, help us to hear what the message is this morning. Help us to wake up. God, help us to wake up. If we're honest, there are generations and families here in our church that are not present for whatever reason. God, I pray that we would feel the weight of that this morning. I pray that families would feel the weight of why children are not in church. Grandchildren are not in church. Not even just talking about church. They're not even walking with the Lord at all. God, it could be. But the reason for that is, is there was a lapse. There was an indifference. playing itself out in such a way. Perhaps the reason is is because there was never a relationship whatsoever. Little by little, those forms of worship have been lost because they don't mean anything without a relationship with Christ. But God, here's the good news. Just like in the city of Sardis, as the word of God came to them in this passage we looked at this morning, they were the faithful few that heard it, believed it and then obeyed it. God, there's freedom, there's forgiveness, there's restoration, there's transformation. Lord God, I pray that we would take serious the gospel in our own personal lives and work to pass it on. It's never too late. So help us this morning. I pray for families to be healed in our community. people this morning, those who need a relationship with Jesus, and we move
into a time of, of response in just a moment. God, I pray that you draw them to yourself. Lord, that they would respond in faith and repentance. God, I pray for believers that just take some time seriously to, to pray for themselves, pray for their family members. God, I pray that we wouldn't just pass this message off so frivolously. God, instead, may we feel the weight of it this align our lives. Amen. Pray in Jesus' name. Let's stand to our feet.